0: Why bother with humanity based on our own experience, based on the world experience in which we live? And yet here we have a father who who we see running to humanity. And then after running to the first son, when the other son, out of anger about being rejected by his father, that's the way at least he saw it. Um, And and then being jealous of his brother and very angry with his brother. We hear the story that the the older brother wouldn't even go into the party, wouldn't even go into the celebration. What a horrible attitude. What does the father do? Oh, forget about him. No, the father goes out to him, leaves the party, goes out to his older, bad-attitude son, and doesn't just... Tell scold him. it doesn't even scold him at all literally begs him it says he begged him to come in son come in and then when the son made some lame excuse of why he, why he would justify his anger the father responded to him and said son everything that i have is yours you've always been with me and we see this beautiful uh, uh response of the father so i see a father running to both sons I see him running to the son who is coming from a distant land and I see him running out of the party to beg his other son to come in and join the fellowship, to be in relationship with him. And so you have this God who's reaching out to humanity, no matter what category hum- humans might be. in. God is, is saying, I'm going to give you my time. I'm going to give you my attention. And even more than that, I'm going to give you my love and all of heaven is now going to be made available to you. And so we see this Beautiful expression of God, uh, focused on people, but we're still set against that backdrop. And I want to talk about not just the glory of this story that Jesus told, but the gory part of this humanity, the human part of this story, the the negative part because you can look at it and say, you know, this could easily lead to cynicism. Why reach out to people? Why go out and beg the older son if he's not going to come into the party? Why continue to reach out to the younger son? And so just for a moment, if you're going to talk about cynicism in concern to humanity, I just want to go there with you for a few moments and just paint the picture of the world in which we live. And I want to focus globally, but also talk about our experience here in the U.S. You know, in the 1940s, we had problems in our public school system. And, and according to the studies that have been done, I want to give you a feel for what those problems were in the 1940s here in the United States of America. Here were the, here were the problems we were dealing with in our public schools. Talking, class, chewing gum, making noise, running in the halls, getting out of turn in, getting out of turn in line, wearing improper clothing, not putting paper in wastebaskets. Oh, for the good old days, right? Mm. They went into the mid-1980s. And then they said, here are the problems that we're dealing with now. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, teen pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, assault. Here we are from the 1940s to the 1980s into 2018. And what are we dealing with now? It's hard not to be cynical, isn't it? When you see the way that humanity is treating humanity. We literally have school shootings now. Mass shootings in school. And, and, and going into an elementary school in Amish country. Going into a free Gun zone and, and bringing guns into Florida columbine name, name the school one after the other. it almost seems like it's like, if it 's not every month it 's every other month another another shooting or attempted shooting that 's going on and it 's not just in our schools it 's in our streets kids killing kids you know we 've ministered in Columbia Heights for a long time and, and and the interesting thing about Columbia Heights is that over the last several years it 's had so much positive press. And so many people have moved there uh, to, to live beside the people who have lived there for years. And, 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 and it's a pretty posh place now, Columbia Heights. But because we've ministered right there connected to people, we know what not only is, is published in the newspapers, but what is unpublished in the newspapers. We know that the killing, the shootings that go on in Columbia Heights, unless somebody dies, it doesn't make the newspaper. So we know of the children in our uh, Adopt-a-Block community, 13-year-old Ebony, 18-year-old Omar, that little little 14-year-old boy who was supposed to come to Washington Latin School when it was here in our building the next day, killed for his shoes. These are the things that we've seen with our own eyes. And at some point, you have to start feeling a little bit of despair, if not just outright cynicism, and and you begin to wonder, is there hope for humanity? What kind of spiraling experience are we having? What kind of response can we give when we're fearful in our schools, when we're fearful, fearful for our children, and we see these kind of things happening in humanity, and we just kind of get numb to it after a while? And by the way, numbness is the same as just Hatred according to the Bible, anything that anything that we 're apathetic to is the opposite of love if we 've just learned not to respond any longer then that 's a, a cynical response that's saying there's nothing that I can do about it. There, there, it, it how can we even say that humanity matters when there's so many problems and we're just talking about one nation we're not talking about all the nations of the world but I'm focused on this nation and kind of the western culture I'm thinking about ourselves the Canadians above us I'm thinking about Europe and I'm looking at what kind of things that have happened in In the way, not only that we behave, but in the way that we believe that is causing this kind of behavior. And I have to ask the question, how did humanity get here? What happened to us to make such a downward spiral? Is this that school system alone that I was talking about? How in the world did we get here? And when you look back at history, somebody gave me a book a few years ago called The Soul of the American University. And and I, I read it, and as soon as I started to read it, I just was disappointed with the title. I said, why do they call this the soul of the American University? They should call this the history of the development of Western uh, education and how it's affected the world. But it's written by a historian called George Marsden, and it's an amazing book. And when you read that book, you find out that there was a lot of cynicism during the dark ages. There were all of this death all around us. And people started to wonder if life really matters, but what's interesting is they went from the dark ages to the age of enlightenment. And during the age of enlightenment, the people's perspective began to rise in their expectation of what would happen to humanity because they saw themselves as progressing, moving out of the dark ages into the age of rationalism, into the age of higher education, uh, higher criticism, all of these things where they were figuring out the world on their own as it was. And so science was coming and then technology uh, in industry technology etc and and it just made us feel like okay now we're going to see a better human experience and what did happen from the dark ages to the enlightenment in the next century you had the bloodiest century in world history in all of human history you had the light shine everyone felt like the light was shining and yet then we have the bloodiest century, we have Paul Pot, we have Stalin, we have Hitler, we have all of these movements that are going on that are killing people by the millions and millions of people in Cambodia and the former Soviet Union and Germany and all throughout Europe and, and, and all the people that were brought into those wars and all of them ideological wars. And so what we see is the dark ages had, had come and gone, but now a new darkness had come. And that darkness was the darkness of the devaluation of humanity and that's really where it came from Eventually, we began to believe that people were not special made in the image of of their creator, but that people evolved uh, from one species to another species, and there was no divine intervention. Darwin gave us a gift that keeps on giving, and it's that gift of the devaluation of human beings, believing that we're not made in the image of a creator, but we're just just made from some accidental uh, scientific experiment that nobody is behind, no intelligent design or whatsoever this was what we began to think this is the way we began to behave most people in our world would never consider themselves an atheist most people would not deny the existence of God but do you know that there's not just a theoretical atheism but a practical atheism do you know that if you live like there is no God you are practically an atheist Do you know that you, in practice, you're living like there is no God? You're living like there is no uh, God that loves us, that is reaching out to us, that has created us in his own image. And so when we ask, how do we get to the place? We got here by a denial of God's existence. And if we allow for God's existence, we somehow remove God's involvement. We don't have God personal with us anymore in our worldview. You know, I want to compare these worldviews. Um, I I quoted uh, an amazing debate uh, on Easter Sunday uh, between John Lennox, a professor at uh, Oxford University, and Richard Dawkins, who's one of the three most uh, renowned atheists of our day, and. And, uh, and John Lennox being himself a believer, both of them scientists. And, and, and I just want to read you a couple of paragraphs from that interview uh, or from that debate that went on. And if you want to look it up, just look up John Lennox, Richard Dawkins. Um, uh, yeah, um, there's three different ones. I'll, I'll think about which one. Just ask me, okay? Because uh, I don't want to stop to think. But here's what Richard Dawkins says. I think there's something wonderful about standing up and facing up to a universe where we are increasing our understanding and we throw away childhood obsessions. We throw away this sort of imaginary friend that comforts us when we're children and we feel the need for some kind of parent figure to turn to. I think when we grow up, we need to cast that aside and stand up tall in the universe and it's cold and we're not going to last forever. We're going to die and we face up to that and I think that's a nobler way of getting through life than to pin your hopes on childhood illusions. I love the way that John Lennox responded to this very just cold, despairing worldview. I love the way he responded at first. He says... That that is taking into consideration, maybe they are illusions, but perhaps they're true. And then he went on to talk about the truth of the existence of God, of the resurrection of Jesus, of God sending his son to die on the cross for us. But before he went into all of that uh, at length, he said this. He said, This is John Lennox. He says, I find the contrast between standing tall and 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 in a a solid and cold universe with no hope believing that your moral sense must ultimately be illusion you're crying for justice because most people never get it because death ends everything the contrast between that and enjoying the friendship the personal friendship of God and knowing that ultimate justice will be done is immense can I read that again I want to give you that contrast because out of something so despairing and so dark, out of the words of Richard Dawkins, I want to read this this statement of hope. He says, I find the contrast between standing tall and solid, standing tall in a solid and cold universe with no hope, believing that your moral sense must ultimately be illusion. You're crying for justice because most people never get it because death ends everything. The contrast between that and enjoying the friendship, the personal friendship of God. And knowing that ultimate justice will be done is immense. You know how Richard Dawkins responded to that? He said, that's right. I believe that. But then he said, but it still has to be true. And that's when Richard John Lennox went on to further talk about the resurrection of Jesus as the ultimate evidence, the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, telling us that in this worldview of despair, that we didn't come from anything and there's nothing beyond us, that all of humanity is eventually going to just burn up in the cosmos and we're going to be just like any, our sun will be like any other star that goes cold and all of our lives will be gone. And nothing of this has been for anything, not any child that was born, not any parent, not any grandparent, not any legacy left on, not any work that was done for the betterment of humanity. Cold, dark worldview. And in contrast to that comes the, the, the words of John Lennox, this other uh, professor scientist, who says, "You know what? A personal friendship with a God who created it all, and knowing that there is ultimate justice, that there is meaning to our lives. This is this is what it is really what would give true meaning to our life." Richard Dawkins says, like, "I can't argue with that. I just it has to be true." And then again, you have to go to the truth of it. So they agreed that the basic question then is whether it is true or not, and and and, and addressing that. But I I'm not taking as much time to do that this morning because God is who He is and can prove His existence to anyone who seeks Him. Can you say Amen? and across the world, especially, as I said, in Europe, uh, north of us in Canada, here in the United States of America, it seems that we've bought more of the lie of the first uh, contrasting argument than the second. It seems that we've bought they are the lie of futility of life doesn't really matter sometimes people say you know what and I'm I'm, this going to sound political but it's not I take no stand I'm not a gun enthusiast I'm not NRA member so I want you to I'm going to say that because we have a lot of people on different sides of that you know throughout the U.S. I'm not entering into that but I'm just saying this guns have been in this country for a lot for a long period of time they were here before I was born they were here through my childhood and I never saw the kind of killings that are going on now. Now. I'm just saying to you that it's it could be a gun thing that we have to respond I'm not just I'm not even going there on that I'm just saying that we can't fail to acknowledge the devaluation of humanity. The way that people don't respect themselves, care for others, the way that people think that they can just go like a video game or some type of movie scene that, set that they've seen and just shoot other human beings. At some point, we've got to get beyond beneath the politics and begin to deal with the people. What do the people believe about themselves? What kind of life experience are they having? Have they learned to devalue humanity or to lift up humanity? See, I think one of the most important things that we can talk about is is that God loves us, that God designed us, that God created us in His own image. And and because it's not just a message that we could say is religious or biblical, of course it's those things, but it's a message that's hopeful. It's a message into the message of despair that we've been feeding our children generation after generation. At some point, people have to know life matters, human matters black lives, white lives, rich lives, poor lives, doesn't matter. Humanity matters. Made in the image of God is the message that we want to go to. Now, I've been really kind of dark and dismal, and I have to deal with the world as it is, but I want to share with you three reasons I have great hope for humanity even now, all right? And I'm not just going to say God is Is able to do the impossible because God is, and that's the ultimate thing. With God, all things are possible. So there's no, there's no one beyond the hope of God. There's no society, no country that is beyond the hope of God. God can make the dead come to life. All of those things. But I'm going to give three reasons in addition to that ultimate one. I'm going to give three reasons that I have hope for humanity, hope for the world in which I live, and these three things give me hope. First of all, in this story, it says the son came to his senses the son came to his senses and I think there are three two things that he came to his senses about first of all he came to his senses that sin selfishness is a dead-end road it leads to nowhere except for heartache except for alienation it leads to much pain he came to his senses that sin and and Just saturating yourself in sin, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all of these things that we try and give ourselves this gratification, all of these things lead to death, death of our relationship with God, death of our relationship with each other. And I'm just so glad that I see this son come to an understanding that sinful behavior, and and, and not only sinful behavior, but sinful belief, Believing that he didn't need his father. Believing that he could make it on his own. Believing that he could live independent and because the father represents God, live independent of God. I'm glad that he came to his senses. That... Just doesn't work. Living without God, somebody said, don't leave home without Him. I would also say, don't stay home without Him. Don't go anywhere without Him. You've got to have God in your life because without God, it's destruction, destruction. You're left with nothing. He had no friends. He had no one caring about Him, nothing at all whatsoever. Here's what Henry Nowen said, and I want to thank Mom for getting me uh, that book just before I taught in this series. Hey, that's my mom and dad. Do you know them? Everyone met my mom and dad? And uh, my mom is on your left and my dad is on your right, in case you didn't know which was which. And uh, so my mom, you know, I shared with her what I was teaching. She says, have you read the book, The Return of the Prodigal by Henry Nowen? If I hadn't read that book, mom, uh, so much would have been left out of this series. It was awesome. Let me give you an example. Here's what Henry Nowen said. He says, it seems that the prodigal had to lose everything to come into touch with the ground of his being. When he found himself desiring to be treated as one of the pigs, he realized that he was not a pig, but a human being, a son of his father. This realization became the basis for his choice to live instead of to die. Once he had come again in touch with the truth of his sonship, he could hear, although faintly, the voice calling him the Beloved. And feel, although distantly, the touch of the Father's blessing. This awareness of and confidence in his Father's love, misty as it may have been, gave him the strength to claim for himself his sonship, even though that claim could not be based in any merit. What got that son out of that pig pen, out of that pit of despair that he was in? It was not just coming to his senses of the price of sin, but remembering that he himself was a son that he had a father. He came to his senses to not only realize that the world without God is a terrible place, but he came to remember that the world with God is a very beautiful place. That there's a kingdom of God, a kingdom of light and love and truth that is not despairing but lifts us up, that makes us realize that we have a purpose in life, that we can get up every morning and serve a higher cause. That's not just for a nation that might be going down the tubes or might be here today and gone to and I pray that none of those are true of the U.S. But what I'm saying is, no matter what happens in this world, there is a kingdom for which we can live that is eternal and will never go away. And everything we do for that kingdom will last for all eternity. And so here you have a son coming to his senses and he's realizing two things. Number one, sin is not the right way to go. Number two, I have to remember at the end of the day that even if I don't deserve to be a son, I'm still a son. And I still have a father. You know, this son knew he was not an animal, even though he was eating with animals. Why? Because he remembered that he was a son of his father. You know what I see happening at this moment? This son was rediscovering his humanity. What makes me hope, have hope for humanity, even though I see all of this devaluation of humanity, is that the son came to his senses when he had lost everything. He remembered what he had, and I believe that a world that's becoming as desperate as ours will finally recognize we can't live this life without God. We have to come to our senses, but we also have to come to our senses that the only way is God. That we can't believe all the lies that have been given to us in spite by hell itself you know I see this lived out in slavery in this country I see this I see how this was lived out in slavery do you, you know it's hard for me to believe that my personal friends my personal friends that I hang out with were told that they couldn't vote in this in this country it's still hard for me to believe that it's still hard for me to believe that one of my spiritual fathers Harold Brinkley he and his family were told that they could not vote in this country But it was worse than that. It was that we actually said that there was a class of people, a race of people. Call them whatever other way we divide people. And I believe that, by the way, there's one race, the human race. I believe there's an ethnicity and color, and I I celebrate ethnicity and I celebrate color and all the diversity. I love how God made us all different, but at the end of the day, we're one human race. But here we are in this country we have to look back at our history and we have to see that codified by the supreme court of this country was that human beings were not really human beings. That they were only partially human beings. As white people in this country, we have to look black people in the face and know that this is a part of the, of the, of the heritage that we share. This is something that we have to grieve over. Something that we have to acknowledge together. That this is something that people would put down. You know, when I went to Bible college, the most intelligent, the most uh, sincere, the most godly man that I've met in my life, his name is Constantine Reifu, came from one of the most amazing Families ever that, w- that God raised up in the, in the, in the continent of Africa and, and, and I remember the, us beginning to have this conversation coming from a world that was very diverse that I grew up in but from a white person's experience in that world and experiencing an African who experienced uh, prejudice even from American missionaries who would not come into his home because of the color of his skin the reality is we have this kind of debasing of humanity you know what? I want you to ask yourself a question. Why, is, why were Africans the target of this? Why, why, why do you see so much anti-Semitism? And I'm just going to say this. The devil always goes after origins. We all come from Africa. That's where we all come from. That's where the Garden of Eden was. That's where the center of the universe is as far as humanity is concerned. God is attacking the very origin of humanity. And that's why I believe that anti-Semitism has been expressed in the way because they were the people that God chose out of all the people of the earth to bring the Messiah to the world, Jesus to the world. And so I see the devil-inspired stuff behind all of this. But what I want to focus on, and I'd love to take more time with that, is I want to focus on the beautiful African-American experience of reclaiming humanity, of saying to the lies of white supremacy, of saying to the lies of this arrogant spirit that says, I'm smarter than you, I'm better than you, and all of that. Standing up and saying, you know what, we're going to reclaim our humanity. I'm not a very political guy when it comes to preaching, and when it comes... I. I I'm aware of politics and all of that, but I'm about the kingdom of God. But I believe that even if there is any type of, little expression of the Me Too movement that maybe I wouldn't agree with 100%. I think there's something very powerful going on in the Me Too movement. When I watch those gymnasts, those female gymnasts stand up and say, this is what you did to me and I'm going to say it publicly, and a court of law saying that that man was wrong and that that he's going to have to pay for what he did to those young girls, you know what I see? I see a reclaiming of humanity. I see people standing up and saying, you know what? I'm a woman created in the image of God. I'm black person created in the image of God, a white person, an Asian person, an Hispanic person. All of these ways that we look down on each other, it's not of God. It's not enough. It's not right for us to devalue anyone because of the ridiculousness of the pigmentation of their skin or the the way that they're expressing themselves in, in the way that they look or their words or whatever it is. What we find from the word of God is that God created humans in his own image. And when I see us falling into this pit of humanity where we're so cynical and we're so prejudiced and racially divided and all of this Sometimes I despair, sometimes I get cynical, but then I get hope. And I say at some point, humanity has to come to its senses. We have to realize that this is not working for us, but we have a God who wants us to be daughters and sons of his. And we're not just animals, but we're humans created in the image of God. And when we have that kind of perspective, we can live like that for ourselves, but we can also live like that for others. I'm going to go one more negative and then I'm going to move on. You know, I see this being lived out now in abortion. It's the same argument. It's the same thing. At one point, this group of people are not human. That's what we're saying about these babies in the womb. We've not studied. I remember Planned Parenthood back in the 80s. I remember watching a video of theirs that they put together. And they poured out on a napkin. They poured out what they said. This is a feces. This is, this is a child that was in the womb. And they poured it out. And it was just... It was just like ash, you know, poured out on that napkin. What they didn't say, because hell will always lie to you. The devil will always lie to you. What they didn't say is that what they were pouring out were the effects of a child in the womb who was ripped out of the womb by a machine that is 70 pounds stronger than a vacuum cleaner we use in our home that literally dismembered, that just disintegrated that human being who was in the womb and they poured it out. And I say, you know what? There's a delusion that's going on, a way of perceiving humanity that says, you know what? Humans don't matter. They don't matter in the womb. They don't matter outside of the womb. I'm just telling you right now, don't be a part of death. Be a part of life. Don't be a part of the death culture that says, you know, these people are devalued, whether they're born, unborn, different race, different uh, socioeconomic uh, place in, in society, whatever they are. At some point, we have to look at humanity the way that God looks at humanity. And when I see the scriptures, I see God running to humanity, embracing humanity kissing humanity so he could bring humanity back in a relationship with himself. That's why every song Ryan and you guys led this morning was exactly this message and even the way that you served communion out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 about God making himself human and taking on our sin so that he could be reconciled with us and then give us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen to what Henry Nouwen says about his own self as a human and about others. He says constantly I I am tempted to wallow in my own lostness and lose touch with my original goodness, my God-given humanity, my basic blessedness, and thus allow the powers of death to take charge. This happens over and over again. Whenever I say to myself... I am no good, I am useless, I am worthless, I am unlovable, I am a nobody. There are always countless events and situations that I can single out to convince myself and others that my life is just not worth living, that I am only a burden, a problem a source of conflict, or an exploiter of other people's time and energy. Many people live with this dark inner sense of themselves. In contrast to the prodigal, they let the darkness absorb them so completely that there is no light left to turn toward and return to. They might not kill themselves physically, but spiritually. They are no longer alive. They have given up faith in their original goodness, and thus also in their Father, who has given them their humanity. But when God created man and woman in his own image he saw quote that it was very good unquote and despite the dark voices no man or woman could ever change that I'm just saying that sometimes even in my own life since age 19 I've looked down on myself because I thought too highly of myself up until that point a girl actually uh, that I liked and I was dating actually broke up with me because she said, he's just too arrogant. That's what she told a friend of hers. He's just too stuck on himself. And it just made me realize, you know, I'm, I'm kind of enamored with myself. Where did this come from? And, and ever since then I've tried to make sure that I'm humbling myself. And then after a while, I realized that the pendulum, just like it often does, swung too far to the other side. And I started to look down on myself. I started to make excuses for myself. Why it wasn't this. Why it wasn't that. And even why other people should look badly upon me. And, and I began to think this lower level, lower way of thinking about myself. And you know what? You know, thinking too highly of yourself is not accurate, but thinking too lowly of yourself is inaccurate as well. God created us in his own image. And so here we have this beautiful um, invitation to see ourselves the way God sees us. But I'm just going to tell you this. It's not a magical thing that this happens. I'm going to use this expression again and again throughout the rest of this series. Grace is waiting for you. Grace is ready to run to you and tell you how valued you are by God. How loved with hugs and kisses and an embrace into his household. That's the way that the Father is looking upon you. Grace is looking to run after you. But I'm just going to tell you this, you have to make space for grace. You have to give room to the love of God. Sometimes we're so caught up with the darkness around us that we don't allow the light to come in. The darkness could just be too much busyness. Never reading the Word of God. Never spending time in prayer. Never getting alone with God and hearing His voice. The other voices are loud. They're boisterous. They're obnoxious. The voice of the devil will tell you what you're not instead of what you are in God. The the voice of the devil to tell you what you can't do instead of what you can do in God. All these voices are out there. They want to define you. They want to define your identity. Even your sexual identity. They want to identify you by gender, whatever it is. All of these things. But then you have the pure voice of God that comes to you and says, you're made in my image. You're uh, You're created by me and I love you and I'm running to you. That's the space that we have to make for grace. And so this is when we all of a sudden hear these other voices. You know, sometimes I want to just hug the whole world. I want to hug that 25-year-old who, who, who spent a half million dollars. I read about it, uh, just the headline. I didn't read the article, but I just read the headline. Spent a half million dollars on plastic surgery to make herself look like Kim Kardashian. I, I want to say, do you realize how much God loves you? Do you realize it's not about your appearance? Do you realize it's about your intrinsic value to him? Do you realize it's because he's your daughter? You know what? Pastor Vinny's going to preach a message, I hope, this summer. And it's about being a father, how God is a father to us. And he says, by having little Lois, I'm realizing how God feels. And I'm not going to steal your whole sermon. But he just shared this with me recently. He says, I can't believe that the love that I have for this little girl Lois. And it's not because of anything she's done because she hasn't even had a chance to do much it's just because she's my daughter and i just want you to know That the reason why God loves you is just because he created you, just because you're his daughter, just because you're his son. doesn't matter whether you think highly of yourself, the way you look, the way you act, any of those things. The love of God is what we sing about here. And so we've got all these people looking for love in all the wrong places, no self-esteem or maybe too much esteem for themselves and not enough for others. We have a devaluing of our own human lives, but a devaluing of other people's lives. And against all of this, God... Never the Father God never stops searching for us, never stops, start, stops begging us to come into His presence, never stops running after us, and He does all that so He can embrace us, return to us, and, and, and make have us make our home with Him and have Him be able to make His home with us. And that's the ultimate story of Jesus Jesus is God running after us, coming in the flesh, coming in human form to say, You want to know how much I love you? I'm going to come down and be with you. And not only be with you, I'm going to suffer everything you've ever suffered. I'm going to experience every temptation you've ever had. I'm going to understand you even experientially. I'm going to get in touch with all that's humanity. I'm going to show you how much value you have to me. And then at the end of the day, I'm going to do what you can't do for yourselves. I'm going to take your sin away, but I'm not going to take it away magically. I'm going to take it away by receiving all the pain, all the injustice, all of the sinful uh, uh, behavior that you've been uh, committing against Against me, I'm gonna take all that sin upon myself. I'm gonna become sin for you so that I can take your sin away. If that's not God somehow telling us how valuable we are as humans, and not just us in this room, but every single human being on the face of this globe, how valuable they are, there's nothing else that screams any louder than that. You know, even these three stories, who's the author of this story? It's Jesus. And even these three stories that he told, it's about going after, looking for things that are precious. That one woman had a had a coin that was so valuable, it was her, all of her earthly goods. When it was lost, she turned the house upside down looking for it. And when she found it, she celebrated and called all of her friends to celebrate. When that shepherd lost one of those sheep, He knew them all by name. He had counted every one of them. He knew them personally. He cared for them. And only one had to be gone for him to leave the 99 behind and go and find that one. And then bring it back on his shoulders, just rejoicing with his family. And then a son. What could be more celebrated by a father, especially in a patriarchal culture? By the way, I just want want to go on record here. I had three daughters before I had two sons. And if I had two more uh, daughters, uh, daughters are the most amazing thing on the planet. I'm gonna I'm gonna say we're not uh, the patriarchal in our in our response. I'm just saying this in a patriarchal culture, agricultural culture. You you had a value in a son that you didn't have in a woman because of the way that they could work their their ability to be able to do manual work on the on the on the farm. All of those things in that culture, son more valued. What could be more precious to a father than a son? And yet the son is gone. What does the father do? He looks for him. He longs for him. And And then he runs to him. And so here we have this beautiful perspective of God. I'm going to finish with this. um, Well, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm going to read this and then finish with something else. Henry Nallen. He said, the question is not how am I to find God. The question is how am I to let myself be found by God. If you have a God who's already running to you, you've got to let yourself be found. I told this funny story about Ludmilla and Al- Alexander. Um, can, can I just relax for just five minutes? Can I just have five minutes? I know it's almost 1230. Five minutes? No? Yes. Yeah? Voice vote? Look, I, I, this is a fun story. I told the story about uh, Alexander and Ludmilla were two little ma- mice. And they were excited about each other and their birth- or her birthday was coming up. And he says, I'm going to find you. He says, or no, they were playing hide and go seek. I, I, I wasn't planning on telling this, but it's going to be fun. Just trust me. They say, let's play hide and go seek on your birthday. So she goes, I'm going to hide and I'm going to count to 10. And you got to come find me. And so she went and hid in the, in the bread box. And he was counting one, two, three. I'm going to find you. Four, five, six. I'm going to find you. No, you're not going to find me. You're not going to find me. Seven, I'm going to find you. I really am. No, you're not. I'm hiding really good. You're never going to find me. Eight, nine, I'm going to find you. And when I find you, I'm going to hug you and I'm going to kiss you. I'm in the bread box. I'm in the bread box. You remember that, Ludmilla? You know, we have to allow God to be, we, we have to allow God to fight. Stop running. Stop thinking that you can do it on your own. Just let God. He's longing for that relationship with you. He just wants to be with you. Then the other question is not how am I to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by God? And then the ultimate question is not how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? How can I just let God be who God is and have the opportunity to love me, to know me, to find me? And this is, how, this is true about yourself, but it's true of all humans. See, I want to ask you the question. Why does God love people? Why does God value people? I, read, just look at these scriptures. We already did them. Write them down. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. We're created in his image. Matthew 6, 26. Read, read, write that down about how Jesus values us. Luke 15, uh, the, the verses that are there. All of this state to us from Scripture how much God loves us. Use these in your devotional. Let God speak His love. Get rid of all those other voices. Let His still, small voice speak into your life. You know, the voice of truth never has to be raised. It just waits for everyone to settle down and then it says what is true. So let God speak to you. And then I want to say this last thing. If God is an extravagantly loving Father, not only how should you feel about yourself, But how should you feel about other people? Can we put that picture of that guy up on there, Nicholas? Can we put Nick up on there? Some of you know this guy's story. The way the world knows Nick is a man without arms and legs. That's the way the world knows him. And that's the way he thought of himself for a while, I'm told. But once this man came to understand who he is by, be, by being created by God and then loved by Jesus all the way to the cross. This man who was known by the world as a man with no arms or legs was no longer just that to himself, but as you can see now, began to think higher about himself, about what God had in store for him, And that man who seemed like he had no future, now you can see, wife, kids. But even more than that, he travels around the world as an evangelist. An evangelist is someone who brings the good news of Jesus to the world. And when the evangelist has done his or her job, that person's life is not only changed, who receives that message. For now, but for all eternity. I want to finish with this clip, and I guess this is my third finish. With this clip from John Lennox, Professor John Lennox Oxford. This is him speaking at the Socrates in the City um, event that is held by Eric Metaxas on a regular basis in New York City. And he's talking about the value of humanity. And I just want us to just, it's a one minute clip. Let's watch this together.
1: In the New Testament. What is meant is the word. If I had another hour, I would want to tell you even more important things about what the message of this book is. And I want to only say one thing.
0: And that's about human
1: beings. We live in a society where human beings are being I debated Peter Singer, an Australian professor from Princeton, who believes that we're guilty of speciesism, separating human beings out from the rest of creatures because they're made in the image of God. He said, that won't go anywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you as I close, my biggest argument for thinking that human beings are special. God became one. Thank
0: you. Raise your hand if you didn't hear that. I just want to make sure there's nobody that missed that. Father, I just pray that we would somehow come to a revelation that would last in our lives and Be lived out on Sundays, Mondays, all the way to Saturdays. Of how much you love us and how much you love this world, the people who live in this world. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that we would have a revelation again and and again and again that we're special because we're made in your image. And we're special because you actually became one of us to drive that point home of how special we are to you. And then beyond becoming one of us, you became guilty for all of us so that we could be forgiven. So that we could be free of our sins that separate us from you, Father, for all eternity and be reconciled to you for this life and for the next. Open my eyes, Lord, to see, the way, to see myself the way you see me and to see others in this world the way you see them. Not my eyes only, but all of our eyes, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there's an opportunity you have right now to, remember how I said at the beginning I'm giving you notes and you could write on the, on the top part uh, why humans matter. On the bottom one where it says one, two, three, four, five, I want you to, before you leave, just to write down, so what are you going to do about it? humans matter for all those reasons and maybe more than we wrote down initially. But now I want to ask you the question, so if if people matter, if people are so valuable, then what are we going to do about it? And I just want to say this, in preparing for this message, the Lord said to me, you still don't think of yourself the way I think of you. And I just started saying, okay, Lord, I need to start thinking of myself better than I do. (laughs) You know, God has made sinners into saints, and We just need to think of ourselves the way God does. So that's how I'm going to apply it to myself. But then here, I'm going to give you an example of three, four other ways that I'm going to do it. Josephine, because you matter so much to God, I heard you're thinking about relocating, and I want to make sure we talk today before you leave, just to find out what your thoughts are and plans. Um, That's one. Tavi, before you leave today, I want to talk to you that question that you're trying to answer for yourself about how to. Fill that paperwork out related to your career and stuff. Because you matter so much to God, I'd love to have that conversation with you. So there's three examples right there. You can write whatever you want for yourself, but I'm just giving you mine. Think differently of myself. Connect with Josephine. Connect with Tavit. The, f- the third one is this. I'm gonna, I want to connect with new people at Embassy Church Life upstairs in the cafe. That's a reminder. Any of them that is new to Embassy Church and you want to find out more about the church. Go out those doors, go up the stairs there, meet us in the cafe. We'll have lunch for you. We'll have enough for anyone who's not been to Embassy Church. Next Sunday, we'll feed everyone. Um, that's the fourth. That's the third, or is that fourth? Fourth. And the last one is, I want to I become a part of a fathering movement that God is raising up in this country to answer one of the greatest, most desperate needs in this country of those young boys who don't have a father in their lives those young girls who don't have a father in their lives i want to i want myself and embassy church to join the movement of just fathering and mothering people that don't know the love of a father know the love of a mother that's that's probably the ultimate thing for me in response to people and how valuable they are to god i want to fulfill that scripture that is in the word of god that says that god turns the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children of their fathers that's my response to how valuable humanity is. I have some others. But you can go ahead and write down yours. How are you going to respond to the value of your life and other people's lives uh, in this world? Okay, feel free to write that down. And then uh, God bless you. We'll go to Embassy Church. I mean, Embassy Church Life upstairs in a little bit. But uh, prayer team's going to be here.